Hey everybody, it's Sean one more time promoting the upcoming Rolex 24 at Daytona. We hope you can join us. Uh, before we get into this Joey Chitwood episode, obviously Joey is the man behind uh, Daytona and their new uh, Uprising project that's finished a couple years ago. Now he's with the ISC, and obviously all of that houses the Rolex 24 at Daytona, which is coming up in uh, just a week and a half from when this episode launches. So uh, hopefully you can come check it out if you're in the area. If you want to make the last-ditch flight to get out, it is well worth it. This is obviously one of the coolest years we may ever have in prototypes. You got Penske coming back. You got Yost coming back. You got Fernando Alonso. You got Rene Rast, Talio Castroneves, Juan Pablo Montoya, and of course, all the normal players. So uh, it's going to be a hell of a race, obviously. No shortage of Dinner with Racers alum, everybody. From Patrick Long to Joey Hand to Mike Hull to Andy Lally to Ryan Eversley, and I'll be there too. Uh, hopefully you can come out. It is one of the coolest races you will ever go to beyond the fact that it's 24 hours long. Being in Daytona Beach, there's other things you can do if you have a significant other that's maybe not into racing. There's at least good restaurants, a beach that you can drive on, you name it. And obviously the access you're going to get at the 24, especially with some of the names that are going to be there, is unprecedented. I always, always recommend if there's one race to sort of buy that extra special ticket for it's going to be the Rolex 24 because it is so jam-packed with cool cars, star-studded lineups, you name it. So come on, check it out. Say hi to Ryan. Try and say hi to me. I promise I'll pretend to be friendly. Once again, that is next weekend, January 25th through the 28th. The race itself is the weekend of the 27th and 28th. It's 24 hours long. It starts at 2.40. It ends at 2.40. You can get tickets at DaytonaInternationalSpeedway.com. Again, that's DaytonaInternationalSpeedway.com. Uh, and if you can't make it, check it out on Fox Sports uh, at IMSA.com. They got the whole schedule, but it's going everywhere between Fox and Fox Sports 1 and Fox Sports 2. Uh, if you do have uh, Fox on your cable provider, you should be able to also watch it through the Fox Sports Go app and of course our international audience should probably be able to find it on IMSA.com or of course 24 hours of live coverage at uh, IMSA Radio which features some Dinner with Racers alums such as Shay Adam, Jeremy Shaw and one day we're going to get John Hindoff and Eve Hewitt if they ever want to which who knows but uh, anyway check it all out goodbye okay so human battering ram Joey Chitwood also Former president of, uh, what was it? Well, you former president of Indianapolis Motor right, Speedway. Right. What was that other one? It was... Uh, 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 New Smyrna? New Smyrna. No. No? No. Uh, Chicagoland? Chicagoland. And... Uh, Daytona. Daytona. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 I forgot yeah, that. I forgot that yeah, I ran yeah. Daytona. Yeah. Yeah. If you could describe your dinner with racers in one word, what would it be? Shameless. Huh. Okay. Okay. Was that a you or us? Both. Okay. <laughs> That applied to everybody involved in this, he looked this right extravaganza. He, he looked in my soul. And now for Dinner with Racers, presented by Continental Tire. With your hosts, Ryan Eversley and Sean Heckman. Placeholder Radio. Welcome to Dinner with Racers. Dinner with Racers. I'm Ryan Eversley alongside my co-host and partner, Sean the Sean Heckman. And we are headed from Charlotte, North Carolina, down to Atlanta, Georgia, to finish up this 34-day trip, which has gone 13,000 miles across 25 states. Just to bring you 29 free meals. We got to travel to Daytona Beach, Florida, and meet up with the COO of the ISC, International Speedway Corporation, Mr. Joey Chitwood. Joey! The third. 
Now we mentioned Joey Chitwood III because he is in fact the grandson of Joey Chitwood. Now if you don't know Joey Chitwood's story, he is sort of the godfather of stunt work. Uh, the Joey Chitwood Thrill Show was almost like a carnival that traveled the country, doing thrill shows all throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s, sort of the innovators of doing the big jumps and putting a car on its side, and generally just doing a lot of mayhem that was controlled, but fun to watch and uh, for people who loved thrill seekers. They were kind of the nitro circus of their time, but it had a motorsports backing to it because Joey Chitwood was racing at the Indianapolis 500. He had a couple of top five finishes and was one of those original badasses that then transitioned from racing into the stunt world because there was money in it. It was a booming business, and they did that all the way into the 90s. And Joey Chitwood III basically grew up in that family and then since gone on to becoming one of those prominent track managers out there. One of his first jobs in racing was working at the Disney World Speedway, and very soon after that he found himself completely building the Chicagoland Speedway from the ground up. From there, he was able to get a job in the IndyCar world as a IRL management type, as well as eventually the president of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway before landing at Daytona as the president of the Daytona International Speedway. So literally the guys run Daytona and Indy back to back, pretty much as big as they get. So uh, now he's the current COO of ISC, and uh, honestly, you can see why, because the minute he sat down with us, he was instantly on form, great storyteller, really affable, the kind of guy you want to have lunch with. Yeah, Joey's personality is very personable and very warm, and we had a great time meeting up with him. We went to the Racing's North Turn, which is a restaurant right on the beach. That's where they used to have the North Turn of the original beach speedway that they raced at back in the day. I had the shrimp tacos, as did Joey, and they were awesome. I had, of course, the chicken sandwich. Did you? I did. Okay. And uh, we learned a lot about uh, a lot of things about Joey. We learned about being the human battering ram. <laughs> we learned about how the media screwed up his grandfather's name. We learned about unions in Illinois. Uh, we learned why you should never trust the signs you read if Bill France has anything to do with them. <laughs> and uh, and generally the art of deflection, which he's a master at. Very, very good at it. So this uh, entire thing was, of course, made possible thanks to this lovely Acura MDX that we got. And it was uh, driven by none other than... Um, Dario Franchitti? Yeah. Right, Dario? Do you guys have to do this now? Come on. I'm trying to drive. Yes, Dario. This is the only time we have to do it. <sighs> I don't know what your problem is. Anyway, thanks again to uh, Foxy Raps, Acura for this lovely Acura MDX, and of course, Godnettle Tire. Here's Joey Chip. Meow. All right, we're going to start in five, four, three, two. Hello, hello. Hey, Ryan Eversley. Joey Chibble. Nice to meet you, hey, Sean. Hey, Sean. Hey, how are you doing? Nice to meet you. 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 Oh, yeah. We took yeah, pictures yeah. and everything. Good, yeah. Huh? yeah. It's yeah. cool. Thanks. Did we... Now, here, now, here's my question. Did we ruin it by taking this seat? Because we noticed there were some, some photos of you over there. Oh, there are photos of me over there? Yeah, you're on the wall. Okay. Oh, there are. I didn't know that. You don't know you're on the wall? Yeah. Okay. All right. I didn't know that. We were, we were secretly hoping you'd be like, guys, that's not my table. Andrew, we haven't done this in a while. This isn't like uh, the Bubba the Love Sponge show, so you don't get to be part of the, the talent. Yeah. Were you on Bubba the Love Sponge? Uh, he's a friend of ours. Oh. So uh, when we go to his studio, we'll do about 45 minutes, and okay. he starts busting on Andrew, and he never uses his name right. Alfred, <laughs> Anthony, nice. just kind of becomes part of the act. Fair enough. All that's right. I, I'd never heard of Bubba the Love Sponge until, uh, until all the Gawker stuff, basically. 
Oh, but. he he's so well, I did my first. Well, I'm gonna save that story if you want. But okay. my first interview with him, I get in there. He goes, all right, let's talk about the cart USAC split in 1979. Uh, Excuse me. All right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he's from Terre Haute, Indiana. He's a okay. racer. Yep. Okay. Yep. He knows more about racing than. And so we had a phenomenal talk about that and then everything yeah. else. And then every right. time we'd go on, his, he owns a, a racetrack in Ocala. Okay. And his kid is going to be a very good race car driver. What yeah. is it called? His race it, track? it was called Ocala Raceway Park, but not it's Bubba Raceway Park. Uh, okay. I was about to say, I was like, to me, it's like Love Sponge Speedway. It's right. the only way right. you can go. Yeah. So. Bubba's pretty close. Yeah. 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 All right. <laughs> All right. So the north turn, um, it's very... Uh, it's actually south. It's yeah. It's it's because this is not where the racetrack. Because like it's called the North Turn, and I was like, oh, it's gonna be right by where the North Turn was for the uh, for the old beach track. But no, this is. I feel like we're. Is is this not the North Turn for the old beach track? Yes, it is. Exactly. This is the North Turn. Yeah. Oh, okay. I've got my geography all wrong. I always thought the track was like five miles north. No, what what they did north of us were the the land speed runs. Yeah. Ah, so copy. Orman that's where I saw to Daytona, stuff. that's where guys were doing back in the 30s, 275 <laughs> miles per hour. <laughs> right. And you're like, okay, that's real safe. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, we actually have one of the cars in the in the Daytona 500 experience, one of okay. the land speed cars, the Bluebird. Right. So yeah. It's pretty awesome. Nice. It's funny to hear former stunt guys say, that's safe. Well, think think about this. It, you know, in the 30s, heck, there wasn't asphalt. There weren't streets. Right. There right. Wasn't, so you'd actually drive a car 275 miles per hour on the beach. Right. And when they reached the point when it was unsafe, which, <laughs> I, you know, at that point, what was safe? Right. And they moved everything out to the salt flats. They said, you know, there's something about this car thing with speed on the beach. Let's let's try a race. But what's more interesting than that, when they did it, they did a car race. They did a motorcycle race. Yeah. Well, the first year, the motorcycle race was uh, more successful than the car race. Ah, interesting. There was a big debate on whether they should bring the cars back. Well, the second year, they decided to do both again, and car racing took off right. in terms of running on the beach and, and kind of Getting creating that mystique and, around yeah. uh, Daytona and what it meant. And then, of course, the France family got involved. But right. I always laugh that motorcycles, actually, the very first year, had more of a, a following or popularity than cars did. Yeah. Nice. So if you look, there's a giant photo over there from, like, an aerial shot of the race. Like, it's a pre-grade kind of thing. It looks like there's, like, 75 cars ready to take the green. And the back side of the track is the beach, yep. you know. And then it looks like you go onto the main road. A1A. A1A. Yeah. And that's the front straight, I guess. That's right. And there's one big grandstand down in what would be three and four, essentially. Um when you get to the other end, it looks like there's nothing down there but just like a turn. There, it was just a turn. There was nothing. When you think right. about this, because that's the, the almost the, the tip of the peninsula, right. right? There's nothing else down there. That sign as you're driving here, <laughs> hey, there's four miles to the end. There's no outlet. Yeah. Right. But, yeah, that was it. And, of course, then there's some old video footage of these guys wrecking oh, and yeah. going off track. And, the, and the, the sand would get pretty deep. Yeah. And they're big ruts. And you just say to yourself... What in the heck is going on? Right, you know, right. how, how is this enjoyable? But it caught on. It's pretty impressive when you think about how that all starts, right. and then it catches a following. And then the, the story that's always the funniest is the France family gets involved in promoting it. But when you think about a, a track that's that long, there's no fences. Yeah. And how do you ticket that? So uh, Big Bill France uh, came up with the idea to put up a warning. Uh, rattlesnakes in the area <laughs> nice. to preclude people <laughs> right. from going into that area so we could get them to the ticketed place where right. you could charge them right. and keep them out of the areas they could see it for free. Yeah. So uh, a promoter, even, even back in the day, on yeah. how do you yeah. collect that uh, ticket admission. I think we would have got along. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> the first thing I noticed looking at that photo is that because there's nothing at the other end, as a driver, I thought, well, I would just wreck everybody down there because <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to see it. <laughs> I'm not sure there were many rules back 
again. <laughs> right. So I don't know if the black flag even existed <laughs> sure. at that point. Sure. I think whatever happened, happened. <laughs> it is pretty cool, though. Some of it, when you see them, they would fan out on the beach. Yeah. And it would be five, six, ten wide. Right, right. And then narrow down to make the turn. Yeah. And then you'd always have that, that one bonsai run right. <laughs> that yep. wasn't going to make it, but <laughs> right. he's going to take out three on the way. Try. So yeah. what the hell at this point? <laughs> so, uh, But pretty impressive. It's pretty cool. I think it's always fun. Let's sit in here just thinking about the history and the heritage. And you see the photos of the older drivers up on the wall. Yeah. And I'm, I'm always amazed. And, and, you know, I've learned some of this from my grandfather, too. You know, what it took to be a race car driver back then yeah. versus what it takes today. I mean, you were wrenching on the car. I mean, look at the helmets. They're not even helmets. Yeah, They're like right. leather hats, yeah. right. maybe some goggles. Um, my grandfather always told stories about Indianapolis and how difficult it was to run there. And, you know, you had relief drivers, all these things. And it just changed so much with right. technology and safety and you name it. But, I mean, to be a driver back then, you had to be a tough individual yeah. Yeah. To, to deal with that and the injuries and just as, you know that's why you guys see like guys like AJ Foyt right you mean yeah, yeah. thick big, big neck arms yeah. forearms what it took to drive that car versus what it takes today yeah yeah. we had uh, lunch with uh, Chaka Myers seems like two weeks ago it was probably like two days it ago it literally was three days ago yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, his dad was killed racing for Lee Petty and the way he talked about it was kind of like doing business yeah he was very passive about it yeah he was like yeah my dad got killed at that race and that was a bummer and then we went to the next race and you know you're like i guess that was just what it was back then took a special breed but if it happened it happened it was a different way to look at it i mean i think it was it was part of the job and and that was part of the allure too which is uh that that adrenaline that risk you Mm -hmm. know pushing the limit pushing the edge and and I think as, as everything occurs, it changes generationally in terms right. of what we view as part of the job and what should be part of the job. Right. But you're right. I, I, yeah, a lot of old racers, they'll, they'll always kind of just, it's just like a conversation and there's no moment of silence. Right. You know, it's just part of what happened. Yeah. And it's interesting, too. Um, you talk to the old guys and they start telling the stories uh, about how many people yeah. they lost. Yeah. And it was fairly frequent. But again, it was just part of the, the deal. If you're a racer, that, that came with it. Now, back in the day, at least on the open wheel side um it's pretty interesting i got a great story so you know the indy 500 in the 40s they still didn't have seat belts right my grandfather was actually the first man to ever wear a seatbelt yeah. at the indy 500 and of course the reason was they wanted you thrown from the car in an accident that was yeah. the thought yeah that yeah. was the thought <laughs> kind of like well they're <laughs> averaging over a hundred miles per hour right around yeah. the indianapolis yeah. motor speedway yeah. and it, who wants to get thrown from a car yeah. at 100 <laughs> miles per hour but the whole reason was they had no fuel cell technology mm-hmm. so almost every fatality was fire right and right. you got burned up so they wanted you out of the car he had to promise the driver's committee that if he if he were in an accident he would undo the belt okay and that was the only way they'd let him do it yeah. and it was pretty funny when you think about that in the 40s that there weren't seat belts yeah yeah, yeah. And of course they i mean again you know they're wearing jeans and shirts and a, right. a yeah. handkerchief over thing. their mouth yeah, yeah. i mean exactly. that, that was the deal garden gloves but yeah. i just i'm always amazed when i think about that to, to now having to convince to wear a belt versus oh, oh the my other. gosh <laughs> the fact the driver committee wasn't gonna let him do it yeah you know and he had to get permission and then agree to this and agree to that and uh a different era different time and and uh, racing was so different back then yeah did, but, he, ca- did he catch from the other drivers like oh, yeah, this guy a- absolutely now the deal is i'll let you know on a secret i don't think i've really told many people this he wanted it to be in the tight in the seat a little bit tighter yeah. so he could stay on the gas. Oh, okay. So yeah, it was more for him, it was more about... He wasn't hanging out of the Yeah, thing. he wanted <laughs> yeah, to be yeah. really cinched in. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, we laughed. So, yes, he wore the first safety belt, but his intent was not safety. <laughs> yeah, it was speed. Yeah. He wanted to be more comfortable <laughs> yeah. in the car and go faster. Yeah. You know, those cars back then, you know, I had a chance um, early 2000s where I got to go back to Indianapolis and actually drive one of his race cars, oh, a pre-race cool. on oh, cool. the track. Yeah. And he drove the knockout hose clamp special 
1946, he finished in fifth place in it. It yeah. was a car that had won the race in years prior. So I'm doing a lap around the track, and I'll never forget how difficult it was just in a parade lap to drive this You're thing. Right. Yeah. You know, I've got the steering wheel, all right? I've got basically a clutch and a gas pedal. I've got the gear shift between my legs, sure. <laughs> and I've got a brake lever outside. So I'm kind of figuring out how I'm doing this. So you got the clutch and the okay and the brake. All right, so we're doing pretty good. And yeah. I'm looking around, and they took a car from every era. So you got Tom Sneva. Yeah. He's in the diesel. Right. You yeah, got yeah, yeah. Uh, Vince Granatelli, Andy's son, mm -hmm. in the turbine. Oh, cool. uh, you got some other folks in some other cool cars. So, I mean, this is like six really cool yeah. old cars. Right, right, I'm right, tooling right. around the speedway. It's pre-race of the Indy 500, thinking... I'm driving my grandfather's car 50 years right, later. Cool yeah. So yeah. no matter what I do in my career, that's going to be a tough one to top, yeah, right? Right, right? So I'm driving around, and then I'm thinking, wow, this is kind of priceless. It's pretty cool. So we do our lap, and we get into pit lane. Well, pre-race at the Indy 500, there is stuff Zero. everywhere. There's yeah. bands. There's cars. There's people. Yeah. Yeah. And so, okay, I go to start to slow down. Oh, there's no brake where my – oh, the brake. Okay, okay, here's the brake. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. Right. Hand on the steering wheel, hand on the brake. How do I downshift? Wait a second. There's no. Yeah. I literally ran out of appendages. I'm yeah. like, I don't. Which I need. I don't. I don't know how to downshift and brake and do this. So, so I basically said, all right. The easiest thing I can do is stall it. Right. Right. So yeah. I stall it in pit lane because yeah. the last thing I want to do is do anything that might harm this vehicle because it's going to go back into the museum at right. the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Right. Right. And so then, of course, I got a ration of grief. Right. Oh, Chitwood, come on! You stalled your grandfather's car. I was right. like, hey, better that. Yeah. But yeah. Literally, your mind takes over. Like. I don't know how to do this. Yeah. Gear right. shift and clutch and brake, they're all... And so then I'm thinking, you drove 500 miles right. racing other folks. Yeah, right. I don't know how they did it back then. Trying not and, to crash. And, and by the way, the drive shaft <laughs> uh -huh. is in between your legs yeah. as well, and that right. sucker's spinning. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you know, you're wearing baggy clothes. That's going to get caught oh, up yeah. in there. It, it was, I mean, it was a tank. Sure. And it was amazing to think that these guys could run for 500 miles and, and be honored it. to do it. Oh, you my know, goodness like, Please gracious. let me drive that car. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, it was a marathon race back then, like yeah. six hours or something crazy. <laughs> right. You know, pit stops were 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, just a different era so i count myself very lucky i had i had a chance a couple of years later too during a, a carb day where a, a gentleman dana meekum okay, okay. meekum auto auction yeah, yeah, he's yeah, a yeah. good guy known him for a long time he actually owns another old car that my grandfather raced in and so he brought it on carb day we were doing some vintage running and he let m me and my dad drive it around the track That's cool. and that was pretty cool all of us all the cars go off and it won't start oh and i'm <laughs> sitting there with my dad thinking come on man we got to get this so they actually push start me nice and we get it started and we get to do a couple laps around the track with my dad in one of my grandfather's old cars and i don't know if there's anything more uh uh poignant to me mm -hmm. to really appreciate what my grandfather did when I look at, at the ability of that. I mean, you know, yeah, running that racetrack and, and where he raced, but then to get in one of his old race cars and actually yeah. do that. Right. Again, I, I count myself very lucky. Those are the things that, those are the things that get me up early and get me to stay late when you want to work hard because it, yeah. it, it, motorsports means something at that point. Right. Right. One of the things I've read that you, you, you say is that this business is personal. And so you, cause you're, you're, you're Great. Was it your grandfather started the thrill show? Yeah. So okay. it, it's really interesting for us. It's a weird story when you think about it. You know, here he is a race car driver. Yeah. And he's, uh, you know, East Coast sprint car champ, you mm -hmm. know, running around, uh, ran with Duke Nalen, Emil Andres, Cowboy Work, all these great names. Well, World War II hits. And racing is outlawed. Yeah. So here he is, an out-of-work race car driver. So he buys the remnants of an automobile stunt show owned by Lucky Teeter. And, of course, Lucky Teeter died performing a stunt. 
I'm not sure how the name equated with his result in terms of being <laughs> right. lucky. Right. So my grandfather bought the remnants of the stunt show from his widow. Okay. And so July 4th, 1943, he, at, during World War II, yeah. he had the first Joey Chitwood Thrill Show in Williams Grove, Pennsylvania. And so the latter part of the 40s and the 50s, it was gangbusters. Right, right. He expanded to the point where we had five units touring the United States. He retired as a as a race car driver and did the stunts full time. He had two sons, my dad, Joey Jr., my uncle Tim, and then me. And so we ran that stunt show from 1943 to 1998. Yeah. So 55 years in the business. I spent 20 years of my life on the road. Right. And I did all the stunts. I did all the crazy things. And, and uh, I did some stuff at 14 that... If I did now with my son, they'd arrest me for child endangerment. <laughs> right, right, I mean, right, it just, right. you don't do that stuff. But it was a great way for me to grow up. I learned a part of the business, uh, you know, what it really takes to be an over-the-road traveling show. Yeah. We would do four or five shows a week. Our season would be June to October. I had a truck driver's license. I probably spent the night in every truck stop and rest area in this country. Right. We understand. And yeah. they literally, we that's what you do yeah. to, to get it done. And so, uh, you know, I think it, it's it's not just racing it's it's family businesses yeah. and you know when i look at my career and i, I have my own family business uh, with my dad my uncle i worked for the holman george family up in indianapolis private company and now working for the france family here in daytona public company but still obviously the family ownership family, yeah. I, I understand which what each family goes through and and how you feel about your business when your name is on that right the headline it's personal it's not business and it's it's a lot more challenging having siblings, relatives, opinions. It, it's different having an opinion about Coca-Cola, right, as an investor or consumer versus an opinion about the Indianapolis Motor Speedway right. or Daytona because there's a little bit more of a personal feeling to it because right. there's families that run it. And right. so you got to be ready for that. that right. That's a different challenge. And that means the phone can ring 24-7. Right. And that means you've got to be prepared. And you may not be at your desk, but you better remember all the stuff right. that's in your files that you're when you ask yeah. the question. Yeah. But I feel well prepared for that. I feel like that's how I had to handle my own family business. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, eyes wide open. Yeah. I understand uh, what that dynamic is. Uh, but I also think then when you see the improvements and the changes, there's a little more to it. It's not just business. Uh, I mean, it, it's something that's unique that has created a lot of following in this country. So many families are involved. And, and you look at Daytona Rising. That, that, was, that was a recognition that Daytona means something for the sport. And Jim France and Lisa France Kennedy understood that and, and gave us the ability to make a huge investment in that property, which I think will resonate for the next 50 years. I don't know who gets to do it in 50 years. Right. I, I have my chance at it. Right. Someone <laughs> else gets to do it in 50 yeah. years. But again, I think in our business, it's interesting, um, you know, Junior retiring right now. Uh, you know, you think about um, expectations of family names in the business. It's almost yeah. unfair, <coughs> right? right? You know, because uh, you got to prove yourself. Um, people think that you should be able to compete at a certain level that they either saw your grandfather or your father. Sure. So the spotlight shines brighter. Right. There's more scrutiny. Uh, you, you don't really get any easy breaks. And, and I tell you, I think Junior, what a pro. I mean, handled it so well. The spotlight was glaring. Yeah. Most popular driver, you know, just just. I'm not sure I could tell anybody how to handle it any better. Yeah. But then I think he provided a great example for the next group of drivers sure. coming up on yeah. how to handle it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to have fun. But then there's a professional side to it. Um, but again, it, something about that family stuff. It, it, you gotta the bar's a little higher to jump over. Right. And unfortunately, that's just the way the game works. Yeah. So you mentioned working with famous families. So we we got it. We got to see obvious stuff. You are part of a famous family, of course. So uh, you are Joey Chitwood the third. For Dale? Grand three, for three for Dale? Pardon me? Oh, you don't know three for Dale? 
Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, anything that has a three in it is for Dale. Oh, for Dale, that's oh, how we do Dale. it? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah man. Right. Little did your dad know that's why it works. There we go. <laughs> um, so your grandfather, Joey Chitwood, uh, your father, Joey Chitwood Jr. Um, I think the most important question that we could ever ask <laughs> is why do you spell it so weird? That's a great that's a great question. So this is this is a pretty unique story. So back in the day when my grandfather was racing, it was very important to know where the race car came from, where okay. it was built. Okay. So he was going to do an interview with a reporter and he was late and missed it. He was driving a car from St. Joe, Missouri. Okay. All right. So the reporter decides to write the story without the interview. Hmm. And so somehow screws up the fact that the car was from St. Joe, Missouri. And my grandfather's real name was George Rice Chitwood. Okay. And it ends up taking the Joe and the Chitwood and combine the two mistakenly. Okay. And then okay. when, when they typeset <laughs> the article, they misspelled Joe and put an I in there. Oh, wow. And that's how okay. we got Joey. <laughs> and so that, that is the way. So you have the St. Joe, Missouri race car built there. Right. We got George Rice Chitwood. <laughs> And they screwed the two up together <laughs> and then misspelled the name. And that's how we got And a J-O-I-E. legacy was born. And uh, unfortunately, my son, I have number four. Yeah. yeah. Um, he gets to that. Why do you spell it that way? Right, right. And then it's just too challenging for people to understand a story for my my son to tell about his great grandfather. Right, yeah, right, I always right. assumed it was like we're we're Armenian or something. And no, it was like, no, 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 no. It really is I, just you a know, typo. Hey, media making a mistake. Imagine that. Yeah. How right? dare you? How <laughs> dare you, sir? We've never but done that. I always tell that story. People laugh, especially when they say when they typeset it wrong. Right. Right. Yeah. Think about doing articles back then. Yeah. 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 So they uh, did. But hey, it's stuck. And the next thing you know, it's he didn't have Andrew Thrill Show. Yeah. If he had Andrew, Booth would have fix that yeah, yeah, yeah. booth would have been all over that <laughs> yeah, yeah. he would have taken care of that. he would have called the editor right. we got a correction yeah, yeah. and Heads then i just think exactly. it would have been the george chitwood thrill show yeah that doesn't sound very nope. good no yeah. i'm glad andrew wasn't around so. exactly how were you when the substitute teacher would come in and they're doing the roll call and it's you know you know i i will tell you um it was interesting uh the joey part wasn't too bad but i will tell you something funny my freshman year in high school right I go to Jesuit High School in Tampa, Florida. It's an all-guys school, and I'm coming from a smaller grade school, and so you're always intimidated that first day. And so we had to wear beanies, these little blue beanies as freshmen. Pretty embarrassing. (laughs) So my first day, homeroom teacher is the French teacher. And she's going through roll call, right? She's calling everybody's names. And, you know, Monsieur Adams, Monsieur uh, uh, Brockton. She gets to me and she goes, Monsieur Sheetwood. <laughs> <laughs> and so at that point, the entire class is laughing. Right. And I'm yeah. sitting there going, really, the first day? Yeah. And she's yeah. looking around like, what, what? Yeah, yeah. Monsieur right. Sheetwood, are you? <laughs> and she says it again. And you're like, I'm here. Come on. And so yeah. for like the first couple of weeks, nobody knew my first name. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. But they sure as heck knew my last name. Yeah, right, so right. Uh, that was one of those where I I wish he would have focused on the first name, but yeah. it's okay. It, it's not too bad. Uh, <laughs> See, what, what happens is people like if I'm checking in someplace, or they, oh, they misspelled your name. Oh, no, they didn't. That's they didn't. right. That's so then that's yeah. that's usually how we deal yeah. with it. What's what's sad is if we were closer or you weren't the president of ISC, I'd today be like, <laughs> "Hey, shit, would." But right. I can't. You know, right. I've been called worse. So <laughs> yeah, just, but, but to can, me, it's it's like you know, those traumatic things when you're growing up that you'll always remember. Right. And that first day of high school, the horror stories about being embarrassed. And by 8.15 a.m., my very first day in yeah. high school, the French teacher unknowingly completely brands me the next yep. four years. for the first six yep. months. And yeah. you're like, oh, God, this couldn't go any worse. Talk I got to pick a new high school. I right. mean, what? how bad is this, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> I got through it. I survived. But I, I just laughed. But it's funny, though, that those are the things that you remember. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
lifetime. Yeah, just little sure. moments like that that go, oh, that was a good embarrassing situation. Yeah. Yeah. No, my, my junior high and high school is nothing but just girl rejection. Yeah. Just rejection <laughs> after rejection after rejection. Let's I talk get about it. it. So, Let's get into it. No, we're good. <laughs> so as a kid, your, your family had the Joey Chitwood Thrill Show, and you guys would travel literally from like state fair to carnival. And it was like, as you re- referred to it as a, you know, absolute road entertainment business, which we're now in. Yep. We're in the yeah, road. Road show now. Too. Yeah. Um, but the stunt that you were known for was the human battering ram. Yeah. The human battering ram. So, so I'm age five years old. Yeah. Right. And I start in a go-kart, right. Okay. Driving around the track. I'm helping with the clown show, oh, doing shit. all this stuff. And so the clown act was always to buy time as we would set up ramps, right. Mm-hmm. You divert the crowd. So I would be doing stuff with him when I was eight years old. I drove a mini Indy, and that car was built for me by Evil Knievel's dad. Oh, cool. Okay. So I had a relationship with Evil Knievel. Actually, Evil Knievel credits seeing my grandfather's stunt show at the uh, county fair in Butte, Montana, okay. as the reason why he got in show business. Wow. So when you think about that, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. Yeah, right. But, yeah. Hey, you know, the connection's <laughs> there. But at 12, I started driving a car. I would drive a Chevy Chevette in the show. And at age 14, this is kind of my big, here it is, this yeah. is happening at the fair in uh, Harrington, Delaware. The TV show That's Incredible shows up. Oh. So I'm going to perform some new stunts that day that right. I haven't done before. So one was the human battering ram. Okay. So the human battering ram is where you lay on the hood of a car, you have a fire suit on and a helmet, and they drive you through a flaming board wall, okay. and you burst through it with your head. <laughs> so that's the human <laughs> battering ram. So when you think about you know, being prepared for a career in motorsports, yeah. Yeah. nothing has prepared me as well as the human battering ram. Driving your head through there a wall. There are many times I have to run through that wall. Now, it was safer and felt better with a helmet. Right. I don't get that pleasure today, so right. I've got to do it with my own head. Right. So uh, that was definitely great learning. But yeah. now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a management joke. When you think about it, though, we in management, we all get challenged with complacency. Okay. Yeah. People get tired or they're used to the same thing, but they like habit. Yeah. Well, if you work at a place where you're doing the same thing over and over, you need somebody to be the human battery ram. <laughs> yeah. Burst through that wall. Yeah. Let's come up with a new plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we do that stunt, which is pretty good. I'll do some precision driving, you know, 180s and other things in the car. That's cool. But then I also do something called the aerial wing walk. So the aerial wing walk is when my dad would drive a car on two wheels. And yeah. I'll tell you guys how to do it. I'm going to give you guys the inside secret <laughs> All right. on how to drive a car on two wheels. So right. remind me to talk to you about we that. We will do it in a car other than our Acura MDX. Yeah, that's right. That's true. Yeah. Insurance I don't want to ruin listening. the car that you're over the road on. Yeah. So he would drive the car on two wheels. I would climb out of the side window, and I would balance on the side, yeah. almost like a surfer, yeah. as he's driving down the front track. And again, and I would climb old? back in. I'm 14 years old. Good. Good. Solid. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. so pretty good child endangerment, no problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, you got to kind of balance up there and go in. So pretty good, more about precision, yeah. you know, methodical, patient. What was pretty funny is um, we were practicing, and the TV show was shooting B-roll of me practicing. So yeah. we have the Chevy Chevette up what's on the side on blocks. I'm climbing in and out. My grandfather uh, is there, and he's rocking the car to simulate motion. Right. I'm doing it. I'm in. I'm out. I'm in. I'm out. I get up there. I'm doing it, and he pushes the car all the way over on all four wheels while I'm standing on the side of it. Ooh. So I get thrown off the car yeah. and roll around and in the so dirt. So you know what that's going to be you know, like. And you're like, yeah. hey, you know, chief, uh, you know, they're filming this. It's kind of embarrassing. And, and he was always the chief. Okay. He was in charge. Okay. That, his nickname back in the day was the Charging Cherokee. Ah, that was his racing copy. nickname, so yeah. he okay. was the chief. Okay. I'm like, chief, what, what, why'd you this do that? This is your dad. Uh, my grandfather. grandfather. No, grandfather. grandfather. Okay. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. chief. And, and I'm like, why'd you do that? And he goes, you got to learn that too. Huh. I was like, okay. So, of fair. course, I learned something that day, right? right? 
absolutely not. I was 14 years old. <laughs> I learned nothing, okay? Like 10 years mean? later, maybe a couple therapy sessions, right, you know. Right. Okay, it's okay to fail yeah, as right. long as you learn what you did wrong yeah. and mm-hmm. how you can get better. So it was his way of preparing me. And, and I have to give him credit and my dad, you know, growing up on the road, you know, you, so think about this. So let's say I'm going to walk you guys through a, a normal day in the life of being on the road. All right. So we pull into a fair at about noon, maybe yeah. 11 a.m. noon. And so say we're at the Honesdale Fair in Pennsylvania. All right. So we unload the equipment. I would go meet with the fair promoter. I'd get our complimentary tickets that we had in our deal. Yeah. I'd go to the Chevy dealership, trade the tickets for the two wrecked or the junkers that we were going to wreck later in the show. <laughs> nice. The other crew guys would. Um, we'd had a mechanic work on the cars. We had guys that would clean the cars, get them ready. I'd bring the clunkers back. We'd have stuntmen, then kind of strip them, prepare them for everything. Basically, you'd work to about 4.30, give or take. Yeah. Five o'clock, we'd do bills and money. So turn in your gas receipts, mm-hmm. draw on your paycheck. I mean, we were, you know, oh, there were busy. basically 12 of yeah, us. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so five o'clock, bills <coughs> and money. We'd go to the trailer, right. get everybody settled up. You had basically two hours then to take a nap, get cleaned up, mm-hmm. just catch your breath. Yeah. 7 p.m., you got to be dressed for the show. Now... If the track were not in good condition, some of these fairs never worked on the track. Right. You know, about six o'clock, some of us would be in a, you know, a dirt mover or something, yeah. whatever the equipment the fair had to get the track ready to do the show. All right, so eight o'clock is the show. We'd go about an hour and ten minutes. I think there were like 20, 21 acts in the show, clown acts. We'd wreck cars, jump cars, two yeah. wheels, all that stuff. All right, so now we're done with the show. Yeah. We load the equipment, uh, get cleaned up. I would, uh, I'll back up on that. I would go to the fair promoter and we get settled up. We were making anywhere from four thousand to six thousand, seven thousand dollars a show. So, yeah. hey, I'll take two in cash. Give me four in a check. I'll send the check back to home base. We'll keep the two on hand for bills Get and money, things off. like that. Yeah, yeah. But you got to go to Dunkirk, New York, that night. All right. Okay. So earlier in that day, when we did bills and money, I would hand out, or some of the guys would hand out, a three by five index card. This would be your route slip. Okay. This is the route you have to follow to get from Honesdale, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. to Dunkirk, New York. Nice. If you break down. I will get you. I'm the last one in line. Right. I got the money and the mechanic with me. Yeah. If you're not on this route, you're on your I own. will not know yeah. that you broke down. Yeah. And so get to Dunkirk by noon tomorrow. Follow this route. Why didn't they just use cell phones? Yeah. yeah. We had no cell phones. <laughs> right. We had no GPS. Right. Yep. We had the Atlas a map. Yep. Yeah. and that. Yep. A- yep. And I will tell you, yep. I, and so if I'd show up at the place at noon and someone there, I'd go to the fair office because that's was your go-to. You'd leave a message at the fair office right. of where if you're going wrong, if you yeah. weren't going to make yeah, it. Right. And I will tell you, there was, there was one time when uh, we missed a show. My dad... We broke down. We were the last ones in line. Oh, we no broke way. down. He was coming yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah, we had to break down. And so he called ahead, and the guys had to run the show. We had a, another gentleman, Jim Kenton, who was our number two guy. And uh, unfortunately, that night, he uh, wrecked driving on two wheels, <laughs> and he wrecked doing the jump. I think it was a little too much that oh, my dad wasn't there. Right. Thing, but, yeah, but yeah. just imagine, for me, as a younger person, and here I am, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old with truck driver's license. I'm keeping a truck log, mm-hmm. driving through way stations, yeah. Yeah. sleeping in restaurants. It, it was a different way to grow up. I yeah. mean, the lessons I learned to see the cash, to manage the cash, I, I think it was the most valuable lessons I learned as I prepared for whatever my career was right. going to yeah. be, right. not knowing I was going to be anything but a stuntman. I didn't think about it. I just right. assumed I would be a stuntman. And then I started doing more and more. Yeah. Reverse spins. I would drive a car on two wheels. I would wreck cars. I would do the sidewinder crash. But, but you guys want to learn how to drive on two wheels? You want to know the tricks of the trade? Yeah, yes. Robbie Gordon actually kind of just showed him the other Okay, <laughs> all right. Well, well, here's how you do it uh, in terms of how we would prepare for it. Yeah. 
you need a car with rear wheel drive. Mm -hmm. Front wheel drive doesn't work very well. Sure. Okay. What you have to do is you have to lock the rear end. Yep. You don't want positive traction. Because sure, sure. the minute you get up, that outside wheel is yes, going to spin out of control. Around, yeah. So you lock that. You put about 80, maybe 90 pounds of pressure in the left side tires. Yeah, okay. they got to be really hard as a rock to yep. do it. You overfill the oil and you overfill the power steering fluid. Right, that way okay? so it doesn't drain when it's on the side. Exactly. Yeah. All right, so now it is truly like riding a bike. You drive it up that ramp, and you've got to catch the balancing point and learn what it feels like. Mm -hmm. Right. Once you learn the feeling, if you turn the steering wheel left, you go down, right, you go up. And so really it's just this steady mm -hmm. back and forth on the steering wheel right. as you're going down the track. Now, asphalt's great. Really good, comfortable, not a problem. On a dirt track... Ooh, yeah. Not yeah, the best. Are I, it yeah, feels sure. like you're on ice a little bit. Yeah. And so my first year on the road, I'm 16 years old, driving a car on two wheels. They, I learned in a Chevy Chevette, and we actually would go to Sunshine Speedway in St. Pete, Florida. We were in Tampa. We'd go over there to practice, and we had the left front fender removed, and we just had a pole with a skid plate. Okay. And if I would go too far, it would catch me. They'd push it over. I'd yep. go practice again. Right. After about a month of kind of learning it, they gave me an old Chevy Blazer and said, have at it. Yeah. If you wreck, you wreck. You just got to live with it. You're right. Okay. So we're on the road. June, we start. I'm doing pretty good. Part of the deal in the stunt show is you do three passes at it. The first pass, you'd get to the end of the front stretch. The second pass, you'd get to turn two. Yeah. The third pass, you'd make it all the way around. And on the one all the way around, I'd be the lead car, and my uncle or my dad, depending on who was in the second car, would pass me on the back stretch, mm -hmm. which we'd play up a big deal. He passed on the back stretch. Yeah. All right. So it's August. I'm two months into this, and I get to Scattercoke, New York. There's a fair up there. And so if you don't catch it off the ramp really well, it tends to go down or to your right. Mm -hmm. And so this blazer had a carburetor in it. It wasn't fuel injection, which is another little bit of a trick. So you have to reverse the carburetor uh, okay. to make sure to the, make fuel sure the goes. gravity doesn't. Yeah. But it gets a little sensitive. So I go off the ramp and I don't catch it well. And it's starting to go down. And I crank the hell out of the steering wheel yeah. to get it back straight. Yeah. All right. So I get it back straight and it stalls. Oh no! Oh, and I'm literally yeah, yeah. there. It feels like 10 <laughs> seconds to me. Like, oh gosh, please go on your wheels. Go on your wheels. Go on your wheels. On right. the left side. Didn't go all the way to the roof. Just stayed on its side. Oh, but I can hear the crunch yeah, of the yeah. fender and the you door. And this is in front of the crowd. Yeah, right. Yeah. And you're like, oh uh, gosh, yeah. I'm embarrassed. So then the crew runs over. They push me down. You got to go back and do it again. Right. Yeah. You don't get a free pass. You're yeah. not giving yeah, up. Yeah. Yeah. So I go back. I go up the ramp and I get down the front straightaway. Then the crowd, I think, thought it was part of the gig. Oh, of course. And they're like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, you did yeah. it. So right. that was my embarrassing, you know. But two months <laughs> in, pretty good. And Scattercook, New York, I'll never forget that. So now, fast forward to the end of the season. We're in Raleigh, North Carolina, mm -hmm. North okay. Carolina State Fair. Great track. It's a horse track. Yeah. So clay always loved that because they always had good equipment you could have a fun show because the surface was great and you could really you know whip the car around yeah. and have some fun stuff so here i am i'm doing the deal again um i have third pass i go up the ramp i got it good i'm going around the track backstretch my uncle passes me and he gets to turn three and he's probably a couple hundred yards in front of me and he sets the car down in turn three and i'm like oh he, he wasn't supposed to do that. He's supposed to go all the way around. Yeah. I'm going to show him. I'm going to make it all right, the way yeah. to the front stretch when he couldn't yeah. do it. And I'm, I'm 16. I'm 18 yeah. years old. And he's, forever. you know, yeah. so <laughs> all right, great. So I get to turn three. There's a huge wet spot. And it's red clay, and you can't see it. Yeah. So literally, the car just pushes through, and I'm on the side. And <laughs> right. it's like, you know, the yeah. words I was using, right. the, the steam. I was like, yeah. that's why he set it down. And of course, Joey thinks he can get through it. And, right, right, and right. so, of course, then the guys have to run. Through, it's a half-mile track. They mm -hmm. have to run through mm -hmm. the infield because I'm just hanging clay, there waiting right. for someone to save me. Yeah. <laughs> Push me back over, yeah. go to the front, and take your bow. And, uh, and you're more... 
cocky than observant. Well, at that point, point yeah. it's yeah. one of those things where you want to prove yourself yeah, after yeah, a year. Yeah, totally. Like, yeah. okay, I can do this. And yeah. lesson learned, you know, uh, as great a track as it was, it was dark out there, and I, I yeah. just didn't, I wasn't prepared for that. Right. I did uh, one time, um, we were in New Hampshire, and this is before a Bush race, so back when it was the Bush series. Yeah. We were pre-race entertainment. Oh, cool. And yeah. so the, I knew the Bear family well, and so we go out there, and I'm doing reverse spins in a Camaro. Right. Okay. So it's the Rockford yep. reverse spin, right? And so I'm, and it's a mile track, right? Big track for us. So I am hauling ass backwards, yeah. you know, and I do the spin and, you know, shift it, and instead of a 180, I keep spinning. Oh, good. And I'm like almost hitting the wall. Yeah. Yeah. My uncle forgets to tell me, hey, on a track this big, you don't need to go that fast. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that would have been good to know. (laughs) I don't really want to embarrass myself in front of everybody out there. Right. So, uh, you know, there's all these moments along the way that you're like, oh, there's nothing like embarrassing yourself in front of the crowd. And then you just got to keep going. Yeah. You got to do it. You got to man up and get it done and, you know, just knock yourself out. So for me. Oh, those are all good lessons. Actually, right. I had another good one, too, for you. So uh, <laughs> we're someplace in North Carolina, north of Charlotte, and it's a it's a dirt track, clay track, and it had rained most of the day. Mm-hmm. So the track was really muddy, and we were doing this stunt. It was motorcycle car precision driving, and the last part of it was two cars and one motorcycle, and as we'd go down the track, we had two ramps set up. He would jump over us one way, and then we'd go the other turn, and he'd jump over us the other way. Well, as he jumps over me the first time, I'm in the mud, so I push out a little bit, and he gets stuck in the mud. So then when we get to the second ramp, I'm a little bit off pace. He's not going as fast because the mud, and he lands on my windshield. <laughs> and literally, the old slope Camaros, so mm-hmm. not they were the version that had that long slope, literally his rear wheel landed I got to think like a foot from my hand on the steering wheel and glass everywhere. Mm -hmm. We had to take him to the hospital. He got knocked out. I literally (laughs) couldn't get out of the car. I was just covered in glass. And I remember going to the back behind all the the setup and them getting out a shop back and shop backing my arm because I just had like all these little, they were everywhere. And so I I laughed to myself. I was like, that was another good one. Um, (laughs) I never never broke a bone. I did knock myself silly one time, did a, a sidewinder crash where we'd set up the two junkers and we'd drive one into the rear of the other one at an angle, you'd hit it, and then you'd do a whole 360 roll. Well, when I hit it, almost catapulted it nose over and landed basically on the roof right next to the car. And I just remember hanging upside down in the car going, wow, this is really interesting. Where am I? Oh, there's <laughs> dirt in here. I'm upside down. And then one of the guys crawls in and says, hey, are you okay? I'm like, oh, hey, that's Jerry. Hey, how are you? And you're like, <laughs> like, like this. Mm-hmm. So obviously I smacked myself a little silly, and then yeah. they undo me, and I get out. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. But this moment of, wow, this is, this is a on? different point of view. Yeah. I don't know what's going on here. So, uh, But luckily no broken bones or, or anything like that. Uh, my dad tells a good story, though. Um, you know, I lived in Joliet, Illinois, yeah. and got to build Chicagoland Speedway. And he told me one time, and I didn't know this, and he said, you know, one of my wrecks in the final jump was in Joliet, Illinois. And I said, really? And they used to do the show at the Joliet Stadium, okay. which is a high school football stadium in yeah. Joliet with a running track. And I'm like, you did the stunt show on a running right, track? Right, Are yeah. you kidding me? Yeah. And he wrecked there. And I thought, I'm living there now, building Chicago Land mm-hmm. Speedway. Mm-hmm. I thought the irony was pretty good <laughs> that he actually wrecked a car in Joliet, right. Illinois. We, we never really had any, any kind of major fatalities. I think there was one back in the 50s, and it had to do with fuel. 
okay. and, and a wreck and, and things like that. But from a stunt show perspective, my grandfather had more injuries as a race car driver, and my dad broke a bone here or there, mm -hmm. basically missing a jump or two. But other than me, you know, knocking myself senseless, which <laughs> people might say I'm senseless anyways, right. not that big of a deal. <laughs> I'm hearing rally. Joliet. Tell me about the big cities you were going through. So, oh my gosh, our big cities. I mean, well, Joliet was not that long ago. That you was know, when you built yeah, the yeah, that was yeah. when I was built it, but doing the stunts there. I mean, I could tell you, I think about New York and Pennsylvania and all the right. fairs that we went to. I mean, I think of Dunkirk and Boonville, New York. <laughs> yeah. And, and Schenectady and, yeah, right. and uh, yep. Boston Spa and Whitney Point, Middletown. We go to we go to Oxford Plains, Maine. We go to Beechridge Speedway in Portland. I mean, it was always a mix of, of county fairs yeah. and speedways. Our goal was always trying to find shows on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday to get us to the good paying shows Thursday, Friday, That's Saturday, right. and yeah, Sunday. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So and and but there were some jumps one time. I, I, we would do actually a Harrington, Delaware to Dunkirk, New York. Uh -huh. That was a tough jump. I mean, you had a good 500 miles. That you had to drive to get to the next spot. And Not going to get any sympathy from us and all that yeah, stuff. I don't want to hear it. You know? So, <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you. But, but then the stress. I mean, I always you'd always be looking around. Okay, all right, none of our stuff is in that truck rest area. Okay, keep right. going. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, you're, right, always, right, you're always right. worried. All right, I'm keeping my eye out. Hopefully, yeah. I'm not missing anything. Totally, so. totally. I, I'm confused. What about school during this whole time? So what would happen is um, I would, when I was younger, younger, I would fly home at Labor Day and miss the first couple of weeks at school. Okay. Then I'd fly back out for a couple of the weekends for the bigger shows. In college, my last two years, I would skip the fall semester and just do a spring semester. So I'd be out on and the road get away with it. June through October okay. and then just go to school you know, January through May, then okay. go on the road. And so kind of... Because it's not exactly a wintertime no, activity. that's sure. exactly it. Okay. You've got to be the coolest kid at school, though, right? You're driving in stunt shows, and so here's the deal: we have this deal with Chevrolet, and we get we get all these cars every year. So my first car at 16 was an IROC Z28 Camaro. <laughs> oh crap! And you're how Bright old? blue metallic T tops. I'm living in Tampa, Florida. And your beach is 30 minutes mm -hmm. away. Mm -hmm. This is as good as it gets, right? <laughs> yeah. And so all my friends would just completely destroy me because they told me I drove like a grandmother. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I said to them, so, you know, I know what can happen when you don't drive well. I have a place where I can go do that stuff, mm -hmm. and I understand the consequences. These kids, they've done their driver's ed. They don't know yeah. what can happen. So they want to go fast. They want to do this. So I've got this smoking fast car. I'm driving <laughs> it very carefully, and they're busting my chops. Yeah, right. And here's the best part. For the first three months after I turned 16, none of my friends' parents would let them ride with me sure. yeah, because yeah. I was the stunt yeah. kid. Yeah, stunt I was the crazy the kid. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I was the safest kid you wanted them to ride with because yeah. I'd been driving for four mm. years mm. before this. Yeah, yeah. So for the first three months, I'm on my own. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I got this cool car. I can't get any of my buddies. I can't go anywhere. <laughs> right. What the hell's going on? Right. So, uh, so it just depends on how you view cute, cool kid. Cool car, couldn't have my buddies ride with me for a while. Uh, so I'm confused, uh, not to jump around here. How do you go from a 17-year-old stunt driver to running, like, all of the biggest tracks in, in North America? Well, I think at the end of the day, I've got everybody fooled. Because I was really just a traveling carny, right? That, <laughs> yes, that's, that's, I, that's, as I are mean, we. I understand. At the end of the day, we want to break it down to its simplest terms. Yeah. And I have everybody fooled yeah. that I actually understand motorsports and management. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't want to go to college. I thought I didn't need it. I'm a stuntman. This is what I do. It's a family business, third generation. Uh, I just I didn't want to do it. So my dad, though, Hey, you need to go. My dad tried it for a semester, didn't work, but he thought it was important that I go. Mm -hmm. So, all right, I'm going to go to college, and I go to the University of Florida, but I don't think I need it. I don't want to go. So if you're going to go someplace and not apply yourself, 
I would recommend Gainesville, Florida. Okay, <laughs> from the party. Let that be a lesson, children. Football. Yeah. I, I think I had a good time. You got a lot so. to do. And, sure. and you know, I, I was, and I say that as a joke, but I'm still mad at myself because I really didn't take advantage of any opportunity sure. presented my yeah, way. Didn't right. do a resume. Didn't think about it. Got my degree. So I spent another year on the road with the family. So, my, yeah. so age 24 at this point, and I decide to quit and do something different. Yeah. Because I thought to myself, I'm spending five months of my life on the road every year. I get back to Tampa, it looks like a different town. Yeah. I, I just, you know, and then of course, typical family business. So you got uncle, dad, Everybody's Joey, got opinions, uh, yeah. the three, I'm not an owner. I'm just an employee. Right. Yeah. How does it all work? And well, now you're in? at that age where it's like, I want to do my own thing probably. That's exactly. Or yeah. if I'm going to help, I, I want to have more of a say in how we sure. operate the show. So, you know, I did kind of the Tom Petty, learning to fly without wings. I just jumped out and and said, okay, what do I do? Yeah. So I went back to get an MBA, get a graduate degree, kind of refocus, and I went to the University of South Florida in Tampa, and best two years of my experience. Uh, Great school, great environment, allowed me to mature as a leader, to participate. I I took the approach, hey, you can sleep when you retire. You're going to do everything and find out what you like, and you're going to decide if you want to do it or not. You don't want to be the guy that said, hey, I could have done that. I could have tried that. I was a teaching assistant. I ended up being the president of the Graduate Business Association. I literally was like, I'm going to do it all. And luckily, my wife was putting me through school, got the student loans, doing the whole shoot and match. And I'll never forget the summer of 1995, I got one semester left. So here I have this finance degree from Florida. I got 20 years of motorsports experience, whether people want to give me credit for being a stuntman or not. It's 20 Still years of 20 experience. Years in the business, sir. And I'm going to get an MBA. And my wife asks me one day, she goes, well, okay, so what are you going to do? And I was like, I don't know. No, you go, come on, what are you going to do? Right. And I blurt out, I want to run a super speedway. No clue I was going to say it. No clue that was going to be the answer. And she's like, okay, well, what's, what's the plan? Said, All right, so I'm going to put some resumes together. I'm going to send out some letters. So I sent out two resumes the summer of 1995 you guys know what the cost of a stamp was back then 29 cents i think it was 32 cents i think and so i sent it out to the two biggest names in motorsports i could think of one was bill french jr with nascar the other was tony george with the indianapolis motor speedway so i got a letter back from nascar thank you for your interest although your qualifications are quite impressive we currently (laughs) do not have a position available at this time okay should one open up we'll be sure to contact you Meaning, yeah, we yeah, don't think you're good yeah, enough yeah. right now. Here's the form letter. There you so go. So Tony George sent me a letter. Go, hey, thanks. I'm going to give you a call. I got a call. Oh. I got hired to work at the Walt Disney World Speedway for three months as they were opening it up. It okay. was going to be the first race yeah, in the, first the racing IRL, league schedule right. in 1996. So I show up. It's a three-month gig. They're paying me dirt, and I'm sure. ready. But ready. I, I'm going to solve the world's problems. You yeah. know, I can do this. So I show up, MBA, finance degree. Let's go. All right. You need to move the medical equipment from the outside first aid station into the infield care station. Okay, got it. You need to be here at 5 a.m. and sign people in with credentials. Okay. All right, you need to carry these TVs and put them up into race control. Now, we're not talking flat screens. We're talking about the old tube TVs. We're talking 1996. These things were heavy. And I'll never forget getting about halfway up and i got to take a break because I can't make it all the way. And I have this epiphany. And this is this lightning strike of clarity when I kind of realize what's really happening. And it's basically that, oh, my gosh, my wife is going to divorce me because this is what my MBA got me. Right. Carrying TVs up the grandstands. And you're 25. So right. basically, what do you do? You put your head down. You work a little harder. You do everything you're supposed to. You grind it out. You show them that you're willing to do anything. They hired me full time. 
I moved up to Indianapolis in March of 1996, and I spent three and a half years with the Indy Racing League. I ultimately was the manager of administration. Really great opportunity from the standpoint, Indy Racing League was really the business wing, and they were using USAC to sanction races. But then we had this timing scoring debacle in um, Texas, in which uh, Ari Leyendijk went into victory lane. By the way, I had a role to play in that. All right. So I'm in pit lane during this race, and the guys from Treadway Racing are coming to me going, there's a problem. We're on the lead lap. Timing and scoring is wrong. And I was like, I'm radioing up to Leo Mel and Brian Barnhart. They're talking to USAC. No, USAC says it's all good. I said, okay. So Leo then gets on the radio and goes, hey, go to victory lane and make sure Ari doesn't go in victory lane because A.J. Foyt wins the race. Yeah. So I do. However... Texas Motor Speedway has two entrances to Victory uh, Lane. So, okay. I have 50-50. I pick that one. Pick the wrong one. Guess what? Ari goes in the other one, throws his gloves, points at AJ. AJ walks over and smacks yeah. him pretty good. Now, what's interesting, if you watch the video, I'm in the periphery because at this point, I don't know what I'm supposed to do to try to stop a fight, but Tony George is there. Right? And so you see Tony trying to be in the middle of it and maybe kind of separate it. Well, they have these two big screen TVs next to Victory Lane. I'm pretty sure at that point... The people involved can see themselves on the big screen. And you're at that point, you go, oh, oh, hey, I don't want to be in this clip. And right. I'm pretty sure Tony backs away. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. none of us want to see that. Right. And so so then Foyt knows he did was wrong. So he bolts out of there. Yep. And I'll never forget this. The week after the race, Eddie Gossage was calling me going, hey, because they had to name Ari the, the winner. Yep. Hey, you got to get that trophy back from AJ. I'm BS. I'm not getting that trophy back from AJ. You get the trophy back from AJ. You see what he did to Ari? I'm not getting smacked. Right. I mean, there's no way. Yeah. Yeah. So so anyway, so so then what happened is IndyCar basically let USAC go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And IndyCar was going to now sanction its own races. Its own deal, right. So yeah. Phil Casey, Brian Barnhart, myself, and Leo Mel in like two weeks had to develop a whole team. It's the whole deal. Yeah. Like yeah. The rules, the this, the that. So I was manager of administration, which meant I was sanction fees, contracts, credentials, okay. parking, all the stuff no one ever got enough of. Right. right? Nobody got enough parking or credentials yep. or prize money. Yeah. And yeah. so I spent three and a half years doing that. That's kind of like great what, experience. Kind of what you were doing with the family business, though. I, I was know, well prepared. I understood yeah. the business side of it. Right. I got it, and uh, I think they were. I forget what our schedule was back then, but you know, dealing with teams and promoters and you know contracts. I'll never forget this. This is a good story. So, uh, Brian Barnhart and I were at, at Las Vegas. We're the IndyCar Series is the first race of the Las Vegas Motor Speedway, and that was later in 1996. So we show up, and it's like oh my gosh, I don't know if we can race. This this track isn't even close to being ready. It, yeah. It's a thrash the week of. Yeah. So I'll never forget on like a Wednesday night or Thursday night prior to the race, Brian Barnhart and I are in my rental car. We're on the track and I'm nosing my rental car up to the wall. He and I are standing on the hood of my car and we're attaching the lights to the fence. You know, the red, yellow, yeah, 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 green yeah. lights. And there's a guy on the outside connecting it to the power and the timing and the scoring. Right. And I thought to myself, Okay, the glamour of motorsports. Yeah, Brian yeah. Barber and I are attaching lights to fences with no potable water then. It was just, you know, like, oh, my God, we got it done. We had the race, but I don't know how the heck we did right. that. So I, it was a great experience. I learned a lot. You know, it was interesting, too, the scrutiny. 
and, and being part of, of really the, the, the spotlight in a negative one. Obviously, all the criticism car, that IRL car, sure, all sure. that stuff. Um, I mean, it was it was interesting to be in an environment where that was such, it took a heavy toll on everybody, right. you know, because we just want to do a good job, put on good events. Yes, there's a political thing with Tony George and Card and why and how, <laughs> and, and, you know, being at Indy and they had the 25 and 8 rule. Yep. Just 25 spots were reserved for Yeah, we, we sat down with Lindsay and James a couple uh, of weeks ago. You know, it's interesting. So. I always look back, and, and I always say to myself, Cart could have won very easily. But because the egos were involved and people were so frustrated, you know, if Cart would have entered the first two races in 1996, they would have had the top 25 slots locked up because the teams in IndyCar just weren't to that quality. Then if you went to the Indy 500 and you had the top 25 spots, then yeah. you could have said, we're not showing up. Right. So you think about the business strategy of that unique relationship between the yeah. two, and then the egos involved in the car going, we're going to run our own race, see you guys yeah. later, when in essence you really need to think when through your strategy. They could have the whole thing. Sure. Now, yeah. I, you know, I'm not going to say who's right or wrong at that point. I wasn't in the room. Uh, the relationship between the Speedway and, and CART, I just, it is what it is. Uh, they got through it. They merged at some point, uh, which was good for everybody, but it was a very hostile and political environment back then that, that made doing our jobs even that much tougher. Sure. But from a timing standpoint, you know, uh, it's usually difficult for somebody to come, even if you're out of business school, to come right out of school and within a couple of years sort of be in a pretty good management position. But it seemed like being sort of a, if you want to call it an upstart business that the IRL was, and with a lot of people shifting around, it was a good opportunity for you to sort of move quickly. It was great. I mean, yeah. the opportunity was there. I think, too, I think it was the fifth employee of the league. Wow. And so, actually, it was pretty funny. Um, back when I was on the three-month gig before I got the full-time job, yeah. they actually had me do a speaker's bureau. And so I would go around and give speeches on what the, the Speedway was doing with building Walt Disney World Speedway and all that stuff. I actually came to Daytona, and I did a speech to the, I think it was called the Cold Tailpipe Society. Okay. It was like a local motorsports group, yeah. and it was run by Godwin Kelly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who was a okay. local yeah. reporter. Who's the guy out here. And, and so... The fact that I don't know how many decades later I'm here, and I knew God when I met him back then, but I actually came to Daytona and gave a speech about IndyCar and the Walt Disney World Speedway. That's of, awesome. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Of, the, the connection points are pretty funny. But, you know, after three and a half years at Indy, I was placed on a committee to perform due diligence on the acquiring of property in Chicago to build a racetrack. And so it's called the Motorsports Alliance, which actually was John Menard, ISC, and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. For some reason, John backed out. I don't know why. And then it was just the, the Indy Speedway and Daytona. And it was called uh, Raceway Associates. Okay. And so they looked in Plano. They looked in DuPage. Finally settled in Joliet. And it's part of our process. So you had a committee at, at Daytona doing stuff for the, for the project. And you had ours in Indy. And they gave our group the task of building an org chart. What should the future org chart of this track be? And part of my job then, too, was to go up and look at Route 66 and do the due diligence on it. You know, how's it performing? Because it was a one year in existence, so we were buying that as well as the 700 acres next to it. And so as we do the org chart, somebody just says, hey, you know, you should throw your resume in. Yeah, I think I should. Yeah. <laughs> and I threw my resume in. Next thing I know, I'm on a plane down to Daytona. Tony signs off on it. He wants me to go sit down with the France family. And I come down to Daytona, and I meet with... Jim France, Lisa France Kennedy, and Bill Jr. And of course, a couple of years ago, I had gotten the rejection letter yeah, from NASCAR. Right, right. So the irony here yeah. of I'm now interviewing <laughs> with them, and I'll never forget this. So, so my grandfather knew Big Bill. My dad knew Bill Jr. My dad always told me a story. He'd come over here for Speed Weeks in one of the Chitwood cars in a Corvette and just yeah. run around and have fun. Well, he got arrested one time for speeding, and he was going so fast, they put him in jail, and he had to pay a fine to get out. Well, he didn't have any money. 
So he sent his buddy to go get Bill Jr. to borrow money <laughs> to actually get out of jail. So now, yeah. I know some of these stories. Bill Jr., though, he's a pro. Yeah. Doesn't even own up that he knows who I am or uh, my name okay. or nothing. Yeah, and he's court. drilling me with questions. Yeah. And I'll never forget the moment when we, we really connected. And that was, he asked me, stunt show and this and well how do they short count you oh, well, well here's how a short count works you know typically the seller has some pennies in front of them and they'll move a penny or two to say that they actually kept a ticket money in their pocket because when the count comes at the end they've got to know how many tickets they put in their pocket versus that so when i explained it to him he looked at me and i think there was a kind of this guy knows the business right which you know it's the cash it's the tickets mm-hmm. it's this and so we had a good interview next thing i know hey yeah we want you to be the vpgm and you're going to go to joliet and i'll never forget this Excited opportunity, yeah. great. Here I am, a young person. I mean, this is 2001, so I'm, you know, 32 years old. Right. I'm going to be in charge of a $135 million construction project. I've never built anything in my life. Heck, I don't even like to mow my own lawn. <laughs> I don't, you know, I'm not a handy guy. Um, and so, uh, nerve wracking. And so, on a Sunday, my wife and I go to a Barnes and Noble and buy a uh, Chicago Tribune newspaper to okay. find out. Hey, we're going up here. Let's find out about it. Yeah. Unfortunately, this was the edition in which they ranked all the counties by crime. Mm. And we're going to go to Will <laughs> County, where Joliet is. So Will County's like number two in murder, three in <laughs> aggravated assault, uh, car, uh, grand right. theft is on there. And what I found out something interesting about that. So. It's not where the murder occurs, it's where they find the body. Ah. So the murders are actually occur in Cook County, it's that they find the bodies in Will County. That's Great. why they had such a high rating. Great. Needless to say, my wife was not that thrilled sure. with the opportunity. <laughs> so I go up there and to work for these two companies. Wow, I mean, talk about stress. Yeah. So think about this, I'm young in my career, I've got this huge project, and if I screw it up, there's nobody left to work for in motorsports. I mean, I, I'm, yeah, right. I'm kind of like, yeah. I got to pick a new industry. Do I have to go back and be a, a stuntman again? Right. I'm like, whoa. Yeah. And that first year was just intense. This drag strip schedule was crazy off the chart, trying to build the track. The Kansas Speedway being built had a much more significant budget than Joliet. <laughs> we were on a shoestring, right. and it took us 22 months to build it. And I mean, the things I learned and the politics in Illinois and the local community, the mayor schooling me up and smacking me around. And I I mean, I was, I I never learned more than what I learned at Joliet on dealing with unions and business and building and the dynamics politically of the companies, one public, one private. And then we had nine local owners. So nine guys had built the drag strip, so okay. they rolled their ownership of the drag strip into the, into the everything. Yeah. Now they were minority shareholders, mm-hmm. you know, small, but still they were living there, yeah, critiquing yeah. me every step yeah, of the way. Yeah. So and really, you're 32, so it's so easy to pick apart. This kid oh, doesn't know what he's doing. And, I, I got to yeah. tell you, and I'll never forget driving to work. We were doing a B96 concert summer bash, yeah. right? And it was like an all-day festival at the drag strip. And I'm driving to work at 6 a.m. And I'll never forget saying to myself. You're not going to fail. You're not going to fail. Almost just telling yourself, just you're going to, you know, you almost have to use that mindset. And I remember showing there at 6 a.m. and not getting home to 4 a.m., right? Because this yeah. concert in at midnight, you're trying to get these little girls into their parents' things and you're making sure. And just that kind of intense schedule in the drag strip as you're still trying to build right the big the track. Yeah. Oh, I tell you, it was, uh, it was one of those... You know, and then I, I laughed. I said, well, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to build a track again. And then, of course, fast forward to Daytona and everything I did. But, again, I, I really, for me, I learned so much. And it gave me the confidence about what it took to lead people, to manage things, right. to really move in the right direction. And, and I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. That part of uh, Illinois is notorious for being very union-controlled and very tough. How many uh, 
rolls of 20s that you have to carry around at any time. So what's interesting is uh, I learned and I understood how it all worked. Right. You know, and, and it wasn't to that degree. However, the unions had very high expectations of what their work involvement would be. Yeah. And what happens is you have unions fight with other unions oh, yeah. about whose job it is. Yeah. Right. And so I'm living that. And right? you're in the middle of it and you, you can't control either right. side. Yeah. You file a grievance, they file a grievance. Okay, well, I remember I'm going on a vacation and we're like, I don't know, a year into the project, maybe 18 months, and I get a call from an executive in Daytona. Hey, the the sign workers filed a grievance against the, the iron workers about billboards. You, you got to do something about that. I'm like, no, I don't. Well, why not? You, they're going to pick it. They're going to strike. No, we have an agreement with Three Rivers. There's no striking on this project. We have an agreement worked out. Well, what, what are you going to I'm not going to do anything. They're going to file a grievance against each other. Mm-hmm. Union leadership will solve that problem. And what will happen is the, the sign workers will win, and then they'll just hire two of the iron workers to sit on their coolers as part of the deal, or vice versa. But this is like the 100th grievance filed right. on the project. Yeah. This is what the unions do. They fight about whose job it is. But it was, I had been living it, so I knew yeah. and I understood. Yeah. But I got someone who hasn't lived it, it's like freaking out. Like, yeah. you know. Yeah. But in their world, they're, right. oh, two unions filed a right, grievance. Right. Yeah. Someone's going to walk off the job. This is a multi-million dollar lawsuit. Yeah, right, right. Those yeah. are the things I started to learn, which, okay, this is how it works. There's a process here. It, it, was, it was, again, uh, you know, when I do sit down to write the book, there will be some chapters in there right, specific right. to Got Joliet and lessons learned for sure. Sure. <laughs> so you've always seemed like a real hands-on guy with all the uh, projects you've been doing. Is that because of when you were a kid, you were kind of handed the the job of, okay, we're going to be the following truck in the, in the convoy, or you need to go handle the payroll, or you need to handle the tickets and things yeah, like that? I think that, that. I think that's part of it, you know, yeah. having a chance to be – well, being in a family business, everybody's expected to do everything. Yeah, right? That's the, the first party. part. But yeah. then – the uniqueness of the stunt show, the over-the-road part, everybody's got their job to play. But I also think, you know, managing a group, you know, you should be willing to do anything that your team's going to do. Right. It's a good message, a good example. And I, I do like to get my hands dirty. I like to be in the, the, the mix of it a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's the exciting part. I enjoy that part of it. And so, yeah, I, you know, I, I like to be in the middle. I like to have some fun with it. Right. I, I'm probably not a good babysitter. You know, you, you wanna you wanna be involved in big projects and fun and lead the way. That's part of the why we do this stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So with that in mind and being like a bigger, <clears throat> you have a bigger presence now. Obviously, you're in charge of Daytona, and Indianapolis, and now obviously with the ISC. Uh, when you hear someone say "I can't" or "That's not my job," does that just drive you crazy? Well, I I think uh, as Andrew Booth is smiling <laughs> over here, uh, it'd be interesting to hear his take on it. Yeah. But I think. I always look at it this way. Um, the reason why we have our jobs is to provide solutions and mm-hmm. answers. They might not be the best, or maybe we need help in right. coming up with the right, right answer. And so if you're going to be in charge of anything, you know, part of it is being, uh, it's, um, it's being a service leader. Right? Yeah. You know, so my job at Daytona was to make sure that Andrew could be successful. Yeah. Does Andrew have the tools, the budget, the direction? Right. Then Andrew needs to do the job. Andrew could come loop me in. Let's talk about it. Let me give you some guidance. Then, okay, get it done. So I don't think that's doing his job for him. But it's making sure he feels like I'm in the boat with him. Yeah. I trust him. We've had a talk. Could go get it done. Let me know what I can do to help. And if I got to get involved, I'll help. I'll do whatever they need to make sure that they're successful. And I, hopefully, I played that role for the team at Daytona or at Indy when I was there yeah. or wherever, where you want your team to be successful. You know, I wasn't going to be the person who could sell every ticket to the Daytona 500. But, you know, Carrie Gritton and her team, off the charts, five stars, phenomenal. Yeah. 
I needed to make sure they had the training, the budget, the tools, the time, the to plan that. to do it. Right. And so if I did my part, then Carrie could take it from there and just knock it out of the park. I think that was the goal. There were probably some areas where I would fixate a little bit more because I maybe had more experience or more opinions. And then there were others where I had to trust those that knew it much better than I did. Mm -hmm. I think I think I always felt good that I could get the team focused on the things that were important. We, we always laughed, not laughed, I, I, I was so fired up and excited at Daytona and the opportunity that we had. You, know, you think about, my gosh, you know, what it took for Big Bill to build Daytona. Yeah. You know, think about that back in there. A lot of naysayers, there's no way. Why would, who, who yeah. NASCAR back then, was a second or third tier motorsport. IndyCar, right. or big car as they called it, was the most popular form of sport. Yeah. You know, so people would say, ah, who wants to watch taxi cabs run around high banks? It just, it wasn't resonating. Mm -hmm. And here you've got Big Bill wanting to go double down. Yeah. Yeah. And let's right. build a so super speedway. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, it takes capital oh, yeah. and equipment and labor. But back then, it took perseverance. It took imagination. Right. I mean, just think, he was imagining something bigger faster, more exciting than anything else that had been built to mm -hmm. date. And imagination fuels desire. Yeah. And desire is what gets you through the naysayers who say, yeah, you can't do that. That's not going to work. Well, if you've got the imagination and your desire is full, you're going to get it done. Mm -hmm. You'll find a way. Right. And I think for the Daytona team, you know, given this great task of $400 million, let's reimagine this American icon. We, in essence, got to walk in Big Bill's footsteps. Mm -hmm. We were reimagining what a racetrack could be and creating something that was more social, more interactive, more stadium-like. I mean, I, I'm still excited to this day to talk about it. <laughs> and it was an absolutely, the most challenging thing I've had a chance to be part of. And I, I would assume Andrew and the rest of the team would say the same, <laughs> right. but we had a team that was second to none. Yeah. There are moments in your career when you realize you're part of something special and, and you feel like that team, it's seamless. They, they, they get it everybody's interlocked yeah there's things along the way that could be done better but there's something about it that this team is ready for the challenge and that daytona team was one of the best ones i've ever worked with right. i mean i it was a privilege for me to be part of it i mean they got it done and to know that we did something special that we did something that i don't know if it'll ever happen again and, and the largest investment in isc's history in anything yeah, right. and i tell you jim france he was in the boat with us he he was he got it from day one, Lisa France Kennedy. We had the right support so that we could be comfortable to make the tough decision. Right. And our team, it was a 24-7, two-and-a-half-year slog. Right. And we had to operate the venue while we were building it. I mean, literally, it was it was crazy, the stuff that we had to do. We had a Coke Zero 400 in the middle of construction in which we had 40,000 seats open on the turn one side, 10,000 seats open high on the turn four side, and no seats in the middle. <laughs> It was the ugliest right. racetrack right. we'd ever seen. And right. what an odd way to run a race. But the way the schedule played out, that's the that's only way we could do. get it yeah, done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. we did it. Yeah. And we figured out a way. Yeah. And I tell you what, I think I think we could have thrown any obstacle at that Daytona <clears throat> team. And from marketing to ticketing to ops to mm -hmm. sales, they would figure it out. You know, we had situations where we had cars and fences. We had safer barrier issues. And every time we were presented with a challenge, that team stepped up and handled it. Right. And you don't have a plan for a jet dryer blowing up on the racetrack, right? right? right. Yeah, and, right. and the track being on fire. Right. But our team knew to expect anything and we were able to manage it and finish a race. Right. And, and I mean, just stuff like that. Yeah. I'm so proud of, of that team because building the track, and so I'll never forget this, things were getting a bit heated 
in race control because mm -hmm. of how long it was taking to figure out if we could go racing with the track on fire, fire and all that sure, stuff. Sure. And by the way, the worst thing you can do to asphalt is set it on fire. Right, it and you literally just laid that tar, down. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'll never forget someone kind of, eh, how long is it? And I was like, you know, we've never set the track on fire to practice, <laughs> so right. I don't really know, and it was your guy that wrecked our jet, right? Right, right, but right. Things were better, but the fact that we were still in the game right. and that we could get this thing done, right. it's like, holy smokes, this, this is going to happen. And I, I tell you what, I, you know, it was tough. I think Andrew knows this. When I had the opportunity then to move on as chief operating officer of ISC, uh, it was very bittersweet. It was yeah. very difficult talking to the team because you accomplish so much with that team, right. and you're, it's, it's that baptism by fire and to say, we did something no one else did. Right. And to kind of move on, it's very difficult. And then you started to see the team break up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you know, our, our accountant went to corporate. Yeah. We had some other staff members go to corporate. And you go, oh, man, it's the band is breaking yeah. up. It'll yeah. never be the same. Right. Yeah. And, and so even addressing the team and just saying, hey, great new opportunity. You're going to have a great new leader. You know, new opportunity, new way to look at things. It was really tough because of, of what we had accomplished together right. Right. And, and to see it every day. I mean, here it is in front of you. You know, this this mile-long yeah, right motorsports yeah. stadium. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the Daytona International Speedway. So, um, again, I, again, so proud of everything, but a little bittersweet of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, got time to move on to the next opportunity. That's what we all do, yeah. Yeah. which is what you should do. You know, what's next? Keep achieving. But, man, to look back and go, I'm not sure we'll, I'll ever get that chance to do something that unique again. I kind of want to go to the middle management thing we talk about a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it seems like you don't have any time for this. Um, but I wonder with the now being the COO of ISC, it, maybe the question should be specific to that company. W one of the things we've come up with uh, in, our, in our careers through motorsports and, and also trying to do this podcast and things like that is like middle management types that aren't willing to rock the boat to, to say a big idea or to push a big, you know, a big thought because it'll be thought is like unsafe yeah. you know it's like better the, to it's, say it's something like if you're a weird podcast like us it's just yeah. an easy example it's so easy to say now nah, they're not available because they don't want us to have lunch and get them in trouble right 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 that, that's um, fair you know that that's it all depends on the culture and the leaders right. and how they set the tone uh, you know i think i've learned some things in my career and whether they're right or wrong or different they've helped me which is i think my job is so in my job right now my job is to help the 12 track presidents be as successful as possible right. and how do I do that what do they need from me mm -hmm. you know Pat Warren in Kansas might need something different than what Matt Beecher needs in Miami different than the new guy Rick Brenner in Michigan so yeah. how do I create an environment where they feel comfortable mm -hmm. telling me what they need and that might be saying hey Joe you're not you're not helping me enough or Joey I got it yeah. I don't need to hear about it I think for for staffers the one thing is if they're hearing from me a lot then I'm uncertain as to if things what are getting doing. done. You yeah. almost yeah. don't want to see or hear from me a lot. Right. It's right. a typical, we want to make sure it's getting done. There are a couple things that there's a book I like that I read a long, long time ago called QBQ, Question Behind the Question. It's a couple hundred pages. You can read it in an hour or two. But I, I liked it because it was a simple way to frame up a conversation. And I, I think communication has a lot to do with everything. Yeah. I mean, we can boil everything down to communication. Right. Did we communicate clearly? Did they get listened to? Was it fulfilled? QBQ is all about how you ask the question, frames up the conversation to a positive or a negative outcome. You know, I could have Andrew Booth in my office and go, hey, Andrew, why did you put out that statement? Okay, that's an immediate negative connotation. Mm -hmm. So what does Andrew do? He gets defensive because now he thinks he might be in trouble. Right. So now he's backpedaling. Yeah. Hey, Andrew, can I help you with messaging around our next activity? I've got some good ideas. Okay, that's a positive interaction. Mm -hmm. I want to help Andrew. I want him to succeed. So 
using why or how could frame up a different response mm -hmm. and ultimately a different fulfillment of the opportunity. Yeah, right, right. And Do so that's just a way to, to kind of to talk to people because again, I, and I've been through it enough. Right. Hey, why the heck did you do that? You're like, oh God, yeah, I'm, now, <laughs> I'm defensive, I'm worried, am right. I in trouble? Right. And, and we, we're gonna do things wrong all the time. Okay, that, that's, that's a given. But I will take hard work and honest mistakes all day long, every day. Yeah. And, and I had some folks that would give us 24 hours straight if we asked them to, and they're gonna make mistakes and that's okay. It's the intent. You know, for those that are showing up at nine and leaving at five, it's tough to tolerate missteps because they're not giving you the effort. Yeah. The other thing I found out, and again, I say this, but I know that I don't do it as well and I have to keep working on every day, is what do employees want? What do they want from leaders? And I, and I read this someplace, I don't know who to give credit to because it's been many years, but it's called VVF, Voice, Value, and Feedback. Okay, we as employees, we want a voice. We want to be able to participate. We want to be part of it. We want to feel valued. Okay, we want to know that we're part of the team. So we want to be able to comment, offer ideas, and know that those things are good, that that's what we want from our employees. Never forget there was a story about the, the space race back under JFK and, and going to the moon. And I remember that they interviewed an individual, a custodian, who was cleaning the hangar following a day's activity of the scientists and <coughs> stuff. And they asked him, well, what do you do? I'm helping put a man on the moon. He's a valued member of the team. Right. Everybody has a role. Mm -hmm. And that role is for the greater good of what the company decides. And then feedback. We want to know if we're doing okay. Right. Right. And sometimes that's a simple, hey, good stuff, keep going. Yeah. You know, just yeah. a pat on the back. It doesn't have to be an attaboy all the time, but to know that we're doing the right things. The feedback can be the toughest. Because if someone's not doing the right thing, how can you be constructive but not deflating? Because right. it's very difficult. And it's very difficult for younger people. And I know in my management career, that was always tough. And sometimes I had older folks reporting to me. And so to sit down and go, I, I need this to be a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Can I, can I, you know? And so um, again, we've got a witness here. I'm sure Andrew could tell all the ways I didn't follow these rules, I'm telling <laughs> you, but they're not easy. Right. You know, you get a lot of things going on, you're frustrated. I, I, there are times when I have raised my voice and let it be known I was unhappy, and that's the, uh, the situation. But I gotta tell you, so, uh, and Andrew uh, rode, uh, rode herd with me on this one when we had a car in the fence. Yeah. You know, grabbing Andrew Booth, uh, we had Coin PR, uh, Brett Sharback, one of our attorneys, and we had to manage through a very difficult situation. And man, we were aligned. We were focused, we knew what we had to do, and we protected the company in a very difficult situation. The right people were involved and everybody played their role. Right. Everybody had a role to play, they did it, and we got through it. And so there's instances when it works, I can point to times when it didn't, yeah. and, and it falls on me, because I didn't set the right tone, or I wasn't clear enough on, yeah. on what the goal was, and then maybe along the way I didn't manage well. You know, sometimes that we want people to do well and we have a blind spot, and we don't realize, you know, it's not getting done. Ah, oh, but that person's a good person, we're gonna get there. And, so uh, I will tell you, there are many times when I think it was safer risking my life as a stuntman <laughs> than doing what I'm doing today right. because I was responsible for my success because either I performed the stunt or I didn't. Here, relying on the team, you know, making sure everybody has what they need, you know, it's tough. You're, you're balancing a lot of different things. Right. And so management is not easy. Uh, if anybody tells you it is, it's not and uh, communication is one of the toughest. And it sounds simple. It sounds simple like we can communicate, but our personalities affect how we say things and how you hear things. And I've learned that a lot through my career. It doesn't mean I'm any better manager today than I was 10 or 15 years ago. I hope I am. Uh, they still keep me on and I'm still doing some good stuff, 
but it's something that you got to keep practicing and learning every day. So uh, last night we had uh, dinner with Tommy Byrne. Not sure if you're familiar if you're familiar with Tommy, but uh, uh, he had a, a fun question for you. Tommy's an enterprising guy. Yeah. So we'll say this is his question, not ours. Okay. Um, he is currently he was a he, he test drove Formula One was a huge junior level star. Now he's been doing a lot of driver coaching and he's developed a product called uh, is it Drift Lift. It's the Drift Lift by Diablo Drifter. By Diablo Drifter. Okay. DiabloDrifter.com. It's a it's a little system that raises the car up so it's got less of a contact pack okay. so it can slide around. Mainly used for team defensive driving courses and also now police officers. And he basically gave us a flyer to give to you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so is this a question or a sales pitch? Kind of a pitch. It's a pitch. pitch. Okay, okay, that's okay. I'm used to that. Pitch, hey. We were into it because that's never happened before. Yeah, but yeah. yeah we're so like, we're getting right. 10% yeah. of whatever happens. So basically he needs to get the drift lift into Daytona. Wants to do like on property. He basically needs your parking lots. Got it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, or or your former parking lots. But we know you know people. So well, this is fantastic. So you've also got a dozen parking this lots. Is, now this is this is like the yeah. art of management, right? right? So this is a perfect way. So this is the classic deflection 101. Right. Outstanding. <laughs> Sounds like a great idea. Yeah. I'd be happy to connect him to Chip Weil, the current president of the Daytona International Speedway, okay. who actually now manages the property to see if there's an opportunity. But you know what? It's interesting. Managed. At Daytona. How about that? So deflection 101. But. <laughs> We'll run so many events at Daytona, we'll run three events on one weekend. Yeah, sure. You'll yeah. use the racetrack for Richard Petty driving experience. You'll use the front parking lot for something like this. Yeah. You'll do a prom inside for something. So yeah. we have a lot of space mm -hmm. and we have a lot of activity. So I'm sure we, we have parts of the property called the skid pad where something like this is exactly yeah. where you do it. So yeah. I'll be happy to pass it along. Although I was disappointed. I was hoping for a really crazy question about stunts or something crazy. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's okay. We, we can ask you. Right. Yeah, we, we can make up our own. But yeah, that's okay. Tommy's, Tommy's a... Pure now, race driver has he, has he gone on like Shark Tank or anything and made the pitch for a, you know, that's he a great should, go, he should, he should do, do this. I mean, because yeah, that sounds yeah. like a unique product. I mean, that yeah, to yeah. me. And that makes for good TV. Yeah, yeah unique exactly. thing. And, and yeah. so, and, and what would really be fun is if you get them out of the studio and put them in the car and yeah, let them drive it right. with that product. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that could be now, now maybe that's now for that's him. My response back is you need to get yourself on Shark Tank and run run with that sucker. But what I like in all of that was it every answer you gave, pure deflection. Yeah. <laughs> love deflection Absolutely. How did we get this? I, I have learned this once or twice. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've been around this I long time. I love podcasts. Listen, I would love to. Because just so you know, the worst part of our job is the request you get for credentials and parking oh, and the well, stories that are told. Hey, listen, I was this. I was hoping I could get a uh, hot pass right. so I could say goodbye to Junior. Cause, yeah. You know, I, okay, you know, sure. the, the, you know. Well, we, we talk about this a lot with drivers primarily because there's always a guy that's trying to, I've got a sponsor. Me and you can work together. And I'll make a little money, and you make all the money. And it turns oh. out it's some guy that's full of shit, and he's just trying he's to just get trying to like something. Pretend like he knows somebody. You know, does, does that guy still get? Can uh, that guy get to you? Or you oh my god, they get now? to everybody. Really? Oh yeah. my god, they get yeah. to five people. It's yeah. like they if find a yes. hundred tickets, then the, I'd be able to. Do you think yeah. other sports have that? Is it they just because of the sponsorship? See, when you think about our sport with racing and cars and the sponsorship and the owners versus an NFL team. Do you right. think there are crazies out there with the NFL team? Well, I guarantee there's crazies, but I think we are, we're. I, I would say this that um, desperation is wrong. We're we're more vulnerable because we're more open to hearing about. You know, there's we need it. there's how many yeah. NFL franchises that are all self funded. Yeah, yeah right. So versus yeah. here, we need that sponsorship to get the car. Yeah, out there. yeah, yeah I, I yeah, can't yeah. run so if you don't give me exactly. I can't yeah. tell you how many times when I was at the the Indy Racing League, if they didn't get ten extra credentials, they weren't going to make it to the yeah, rest of the exactly. season. Right. Exactly. And you're, yeah. and you're just like, oh, I'll never forget this. Here's a good story. I'm, I pivot. Uh, Eddie Cheever. So okay. Good friend Eddie Cheever, known him a long nice. time. Yeah. Uh, Eddie brought up a great story, and I, I almost forgot this. And this is you do your job, but you have a negative impact on somebody. Eddie had split up with his team, yeah, uh, as first plus team Cheever, and they split up after the season. And so they come to the next year, and Eddie's got his own team, and these other guys have 
their team. And so as part of the Indy Racing League, they had this special bonus if you were in the top 20 points. If you came to a race and participated, you got an extra 25 grand. I don't know, whatever the number is. So they show up, they put their entry blanks in and this and that. So I'm going through everything and we're doing the prize money at the end of the first race. And I catch something and I have to call Eddie in and he was cheaper racing. Yeah. No, he wasn't. He had filed a different tax ID number on the entry blank for the race. Huh. The old entity kept that tax ID number. So okay. his old partners, who aren't, quote, Team Cheever, yeah. but whatever that business is, that LLC yeah. has that tax ID number. That was the tax ID number that ran yeah. last year as an entrant in the IndyCar yeah, series. Sure. So, Eddie, yes, you are Team Cheever, and you were Team Cheever last year. You have a different tax ID number. You're not in the top 20 of points you're not going to get the bonus. You're right. right. Oh, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. The tongue lashing I took. Ruining the sport. Just the yeah, complete. Yeah, yeah. And, sure. and, but it's like, hey, I'm doing my job. I, I can't. Dude. This is yeah, like. This is the deal. You know, yeah. I, I had one time Bobby Unser got really hot at me. He wanted me to give a credential yeah. to his girlfriend who he was going to marry. But her name was still something else. Uh -huh. But he wanted the hard card and the, and, the liability from, say, Lisa yeah. Unser. And I was like, I, I, I can't, can't do that. Do that. That's there. not yeah. that name. I need the real name. Yeah. This waiver. Yeah. That's the line And so insurance. he went to Leo Mel. Leo Mel ripped me up and down. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, the lawyer's like, no, Joey did the right job. But I mean, Leo's killing me because yeah, right. Bobby's killing him. And yeah. you just, you're like, sometimes you just can't win, right? But Somebody yeah. always needs something. If uh, Spence Rompelli's driving through the paddock at Daytona and hits, and hits a fan, Lee Sunser. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Tonight we're going to have uh, dinner with Brian Redman. I'm not All sure right. if you're familiar with I him. I know Brian. Awesome. I've got a Brian cool. question. Oh, awesome. yes. Kind of a Brian question. Okay. But don't let him deflect. No, we won't. Okay. okay. No deflection yeah, yeah, yeah. on Brian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, He's not in charge right. of the ice. And I don't think he's as masterful as you with this. <laughs> All right. So, Brian, yeah. accomplished racing career oh, yeah. in the thick of a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. But all these stories that David Hobbs tells about him. I want to know how much, what's the percentage of it that's BS, and what's the percentage is real? Because he and Hobbs, I think, there's something going on. There's no way all these stories are <laughs> sure. real. I think they're shining us on, okay. and half of them are fake. So I want to know from him, what's the percentage of BS that Hobbs tells about Redmond? Is it 50-50? Is it 100%? Something's 25. going on. Way too many good stories. Yep. So that's my Redmond question. All right? Nice. And then we'll throw Hobbs in there to kind of stir the pot. Totally. So. That's, that's excellent. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. A couple quick fire questions just to throw oh. at you. Best stunt that that your uh, buddy slash rival Eddie Goss has just thrown. We're like, oh, screw you, Eddie. So uh, first off, Eddie had the Joey Chitwood Thrill Show as part of pre-race entertainment. Excellent. Of course okay. he did. Yeah. So of guess what? Him hiring the Chitwood Show, I think, was the best Sunday. Yeah. I, I, get, I know Eddie well. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and uh, some of the stuff he did has been pretty fun. I don't know if I have a favorite. You know, Robbie Knievel being there and a new Robbie. He right. did some good stuff. Eddie, Eddie's the kind of guy... Ready, fire, aim. Yeah. Yep. And that seems yeah. to work for him really well. Yep. 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 Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you ever look at Doug Bowles and go, screw your tie? I like Doug. Of course. So I knew we Doug, love Doug. I knew Doug back when he was Panther racing. And so yeah. Doug and I talk. Okay. He's called me before and said, hey, what about this? And he's told me some stories about whatever. I'm like, I don't remember doing that. Did I really do that, Doug? Yeah, yeah. Right. Like, there's some little bit of some stories. Like, I guess there's some handrail at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum that's off kilter because I told everybody to stop working on something and he told yeah. some funny stories. <laughs> he did this. It, it, you know, I think, uh, you know, what, what I think what, what Doug has got a passion for it. He's got a connection to the sport. Yeah. I think that's what you need in those, those, there's special properties that you've got to have some connection. You know, at Indy, I had the connection with my grandfather. Well, here in Daytona, 
The day I was born, February 20th, 1969 in Tampa, Florida, my mom was on her own because my dad was too busy that day. He was racing a car at the Daytona International Speedway. Huh. And so I think about Indy and Daytona, the fact I have this right. family connection with yeah. both, I think that gave me that little extra to want these properties to do right. not just great, but the best. Well, like you said, and it's personal. It's personal. And yeah. I think Doug in that role, he's got a passion for it. He's got a connection to the property. Yeah. I think he's doing a great job. Is there sort of a legend of the Speedway you wish his story was told more? Hands down. Hands down. Larry Gonselman. Oh. Huh. Okay. All right. And then uh, uh, other rapid fire question. <laughs> How do we become the official live podcast, <laughs> webcast, uh, during the Rolex 24? Uh, Andrew Booth is sitting next to me. Oh, that's okay. the, the perfect PR guy. He's yeah. in charge of all PR and okay. media around that. Okay. But by the way, with the announcement of Fernando Alonso, yeah. holy smokes. That's yeah. why we're now trying to we're get talking. in on That is impressive. Yeah. Zach Brown, good I, guy. I feel like we know a guy to make this happen. That's, yeah. uh, that's going to yeah. be strong. And yeah. the reaction from the crowd at Indy, yeah. when yeah. we ran the 500, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this Rolex is going to be fantastic. What yeah. a great announcement. I mean, I'll tell you what, IMSA, sports car racing, they have really put together a nice package. You know, Roger Penske going all in. Yeah. I mean, it's... It's pretty impressive where they're heading with everything. Yeah, yeah. it could be, could be pretty cool. Um, so you got to do a lot of stunts. Obviously, the human, what was it, the human wrecking ball? Or human battering ram? Human battering ram. What was the dumbest one if it wasn't that one that you had to do? Oh, well, the dumbest stuff had to be doing the stuff with the clown. <laughs> okay. I mean, look, you're in front of a crowd. They don't really care about the clown. They want to see the stunts, Something. the crazy, yeah. the loud. And I'm right. out there, you know, lighting a, lighting a fake TNT stick, right? <laughs> he gets it. He throws it to me. I shove it down his pants. I right. mean, just... just you know, <laughs> you reach a point, if you're going to be a showman, you have to put your pride on a you shelf, to, yeah. and you got to go out there and entertain. <laughs> yeah, right. and, and again, what was my role that day? It was to make sure we had a successful stunt show. Right. Right. Part of it was working with the clown yeah. and doing that. And so for me, you know, I had three words that I used for the Daytona staff in terms of what we had to get our job, what we had to do to be promoters of Daytona. Yeah. We needed to be shameless. <laughs> right. We needed to be relentless. And we needed to be unapologetic. Right. And right. I think I learned that by running a family business and being a promoter showman. You got to approach things and you got to push the envelope every chance you get. Yeah. Nice. Hey, Andrew, put this on real quick. Oh. We're going to do this. We got to do it. And then we'll let you go. All right. So now, now, that, you, now that we hopefully haven't gotten you in trouble, uh, how do we become the official live podcast of the Rolex 24? Well, I'll do. I'll get you connected with my uh, oh, senior director of oh, marketing and communications, Steve Swinger, and uh, he's we'll see learned. what we can do uh, to put yeah. something together for you. <laughs> you did good. I didn't you set did that good. up either. He was over there trying to pay the bill, and so he didn't know this. This was a great, <laughs> we just, a perfect response. I learned from the best because I, I deflected to you, and you deflected to a oh, boss. Yes, you learned from fantastic. the best. Management one hundred and one. That's pretty good. Yeah, not bad. All right. Well, speaking of deflection, poor Dario is still waiting in the car. Yeah. So, so uh, Cottonell's got the check. All right, so I got to I got to leave you with one last thing. Oh, one okay, of my, we'll my, start over again. Yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite quotes. I've got a bunch of quotes that I like. They're all there's all sorts of good stuff out there, but um, Mario Andretti. Yeah, we right? we've been unbelievable lineage, all that stuff, everything that he's done. Uh, his saying is, if things seem like they're under control, mm -hmm. you're just not going fast enough. Yep. And boy, there's nothing more appropriate if you're going to work in our business, yeah. not just about turning a wrench and run a car, but promoting. And doing all the things we do, and you gotta go fast, yeah. and you gotta push it to the edge, and and I think that Daytona team to take on that project, man, they pushed it to the edge, yeah. and, and hopefully that's what everybody's doing every day. You don't want to finish in second, you gotta go fast to finish in first, and that's why we do it. That's why we drive twelve thousand miles in a month. There you go for, for your free podcast. For your free podcast. <laughs> all right, Cottonelle's got the check. Cottonelle's got the check. <laughs> <laughs>
Podcast. Chitwood! Chitwood! And once again, thank you to Mr. Joey Chitwood for uh, coming on. We will actually be at Daytona in uh, God, just a little over a week. So uh, we hope to see you there at the Rolex 24. And uh, we actually have a couple other things going on with Daytona as well. So we might be there a couple times in the next few weeks. But uh, in any case, that's going to wrap this out. Uh, we're going to replay a uh, band that uh, submitted to us a while ago. You already heard one track from Zentril. Uh, and this is another one. You can find them on uh, SoundCloud and Spotify. It's a Zentril, Z-E-N-T-R-I-L. And this is a song called Try.